You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture today is from Matthew 4, 12 to 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the, ter- in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Sam. Would you pray with me, and then uh, let's spend some time reflecting on this passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given to us your word. You've made yourself known to us, not only through your acts of creation, but through the specificity of this, your word. We pray now as we turn our attention to this passage at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, that you would help us to see and understand more and more of who Jesus is and what he came to do and to bring, and you would challenge us to be the type of people who live lives that reflect a loyalty to this Jesus. I do also pray, Father, that my voice would hold out and you would give mercy to those who are listening that we would listen well for the sake of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, since the sun hasn't been shining for, I don't know, like three months it feels like um, here in Toronto, I wanted to begin by asking you to imagine with me, uh, imagine with me that you're in the fifth century, okay? Let's imagine you were born into a family of privilege with quite a bit of wealth. You're in the Roman province of Scythia Minor, which is modern day uh, on the border of Bulgaria and Romania. And you live near the Black Sea. And despite uh, great, great wealth and stature in the community, your brother, whose name is John, John Cassian, has decided he wants to start a quest to understand why people have moved out of the cities and begin living in these things called monasteries. And he decides to go on a tour going all around Jerusalem and various other locations to visit with these monks. And eventually he finds himself all the way down in Egypt, visiting with the hermits, who have lived in absolute isolation some of whom have taken vows of silence and have refused to speak. But the more he surveyed, as he walked around and surveyed, he asked these people, why have you chosen to do this with your life? Why have you done this, moving away from society, living in the middle of nowhere? And the consistent answer he hears is this, that these people were seeking the kingdom of God. Now let's imagine it's the fourth century. Let's imagine we're in the city of Siena, Italy, just outside of Tuscany. And there's a crisis in the world. It's called the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Somewhere between 75 to 200 million people will die. Death is is nearly everywhere you look. And you, for the most part, see no visitors to your city for some time because this plague has become so serious. And all you hear is death. And all you you see is is neighbors uh, carrying out corpses out of their houses. And yet one day, as you're sitting in your house, you hear a large band of wanderers coming down, almost like a parade. Over a hundred men 
They don't have any shirts on, and they're carrying in their hands these leather whips, and they're whipping themselves across their back and across their chest until they start bleeding. And in the midst of this confusing scene, you stop one of them and you ask them, why are you doing this? They look you in the eyes and they say this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now let's imagine it's the mid-sixth century. You're in the city of Munster in Germany. It's an exciting time. The teaching of one man named Martin Luther has sort of transformed not only church as you knew it, but also society in general. And things like democracy and equality, concepts that were kind of foreign and unheard of, become a reality, not just uh, in theory, but in your practice of your day-to-day life. You're a poor peasant, and you knew nothing of any of these discussions of equality. And all of a sudden, you find yourself captivated by the teaching of one man, a Dutch immigrant. He's a tailor. He's called John of Leiden. And he's had these prophecies. And in his prophecies, he sees the city of Munster needing to undergo a revolution. He declares himself to be God's king. And he overthrows the establishment, and much to your surprise, as a poor peasant, he demands of all people to hold all their goods in common together in the city. This is somewhat exciting, but somewhat confusing, as he also begins to allow polygamy and demands that the ungodly be exterminated immediately. So much has changed, and you ask John, what is going on? Why is this happening? And John says, it has come upon us to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. Now let's say it's 1977. You're in uh, San Juan del Sur in Nicaragua on the Pacific. Nice sunny day. There's a new priest in your town. He came from Spain. A man of, of high privilege. Father Gaspar Laviana. And as you sit under the teaching of Father, Father Gaspar, you notice that he has this growing anger and indignation. He's unbelievably frustrated about the lack of care for the poor and the marginalized amongst the ruling family in Nicaragua. And Father Latviana begins teaching, among other things, that to be a true disciple of Jesus, to be a true citizen of the kingdom of God, you must work towards liberating the captives, proclaiming good news to the poor. This is how the kingdom of God will come in. You must actively fight and resist injustice. And much to your surprise, one Sunday you come to church to find that Father Liviana has given up his ordination. And he's actually disappeared and joined the Sandinista National Liberation Front. And you ask his close advisors, why did he do this? And they say to you, he was seeking God's kingdom. Now let's fast forward a little closer, closer to home. It's 1988. You uh, just rented a movie from Blockbuster and you got to rewind it and bring it back. And you turn on the TV as you're rewinding this video, and you see the news. This U.S. televangelist named Pat Robertson, who's been on the record for saying some bizarre things, has announced all of a sudden he's running for president. And you're a bit shocked. And you think, isn't this the guy that's on at midnight, you know, telling people to send money and pray prayers? Why is he running for president? And much to your surprise, you hear in an interview Pat Robertson say, God has told me that I need to participate with other Christians in taking dominion over society and usher in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, why do I share this? In this passage, Jesus begins his earthly ministry with this pronouncement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew has already told us 
as he, unlaid, uh, as he outlined Jesus' genealogy, that Jesus is a king from the line of David, and he's coming now to show us what his kingdom is going to be like, and his kingdom has been a source of tremendous confusion and uncertainty for the Christian community throughout the ages. But you can't understand Jesus until you understand something of this kingdom that he is rolling in. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at, uh, first I want to look at to whom the kingdom comes, who does Jesus bring the kingdom to, then I want to look at what kind of kingdom he brings, and finally I want to end with this question that has haunted us throughout history. How do we rightfully live as citizens of this kingdom today? So let me begin by asking, to whom does this kingdom come? Again, we've been looking at this biography of Jesus. We've been looking at this first gospel. It's called Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew has been using this fulfillment formula. He's been saying, look, Jesus did certain things, and he did this because this fulfilled an ancient prophecy that was given from times of old. And he does it again here, but he notes various geographical notes. Some time has passed. You may remember Jesus was baptized. He was tempted in the desert for 40 days by Satan. We looked at this last week. Some time period has passed between that point and now. And Matthew tells us that John has been arrested. And this becomes for Jesus a signal that he needs to head north to the region of Galilee, to the city of Capernaum, a fishing village sort of on the northernmost part of where Israel was, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. This is where he's going to establish his ministry. And this seems innocuous to us and almost unnecessary to record. And yet, to Matthew, Matthew says something is going on here. That Jesus did this to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had said long ago. What the prophet said in his Isaiah chapter 8. And if you flip back your Bible to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, you find that Isaiah prophesied that, that great doom was coming upon God's people in the northern kingdom. The people were going to, to uh, they were living under the shadow of tremendous doom. The Assyrian Empire was going to come down on them. And it would be a time of tremendous, tremendous darkness. And the people in the northernmost territories, Nebulon, uh, Naphtali, and, um, and Zebulon and Naphtali, sorry, right before we came up, Lyndon mispronounced these names to Sam to try to screw him up. And now he got in my head. <laughs> Zebulon and Naphtali, these, these regions in the northernmost part of Israel would be the first that the invading army would stomp through. They would be the first to feel the roar of the chariots and the march of the soldiers. These people were living in great darkness and great doom. But if you continue to read from Isaiah chapter 8 to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah prophesies that their doom will not last forever. One day, one day, the darkness will be invaded by a light. And it will roll in, and it will start. And these northernmost territories, who were the greatest victims, the ones who knew the Assyrian army was coming. And you may remember, the Assyrian army does indeed come comes in 722 B.C. and begins to invade first the, northern, the northernmost territories. And their, their strategy was to take Jewish people and pull them out of this land, especially the ones of nobility and of any stature, to remove them and to put them as various other colonies around their kingdom. But, and to take people from other conquered nations and place them in these cities. And this is, the, this is the status of Galilee at the time of Jesus. The darkness had never really been pulled back. It was filled with a mix of people who had been put into this, into this town. People who were victims of tremendous trauma, seeing parents separated from kids and seeing new people coming in and forced to live with them. And surely a time of distrust and violence for years and years and years. The city of Galilee had never been restored. And Matthew tells us that this is exactly where Jesus is coming to set up home base. In Galilee. In this polluted area 
that was never restored to fully being Jewish, mixed up with nations, just as Isaiah prophesied, the light dawns first there. Some 750 years pass since the prophecy of Isaiah. There's no little national pride of the city, and yet the light dawns. This is where Jesus starts his campaign. He goes first to those who know they are cursed, to those who know they are helpless, to those who know they aren't the pride of the nation, to those who know that God is not necessarily begging to keep them on the team, those who know they need God's mercy. That's where he starts his ministry. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Let's imagine you work for some uh, multinational corporation that sells trendy clothes. And uh, this corporation works its way into sort of the halls of power and becomes the most trendy clothing company in whatever country that they end up in. And you've been appointed, uh, or you've been asked to consult to be their sort of a person who helps them establish their foothold in Canada. You're going to spread this trendy clothesline to Canada and make sure that they dominate and take over the Canadian market. And let's just imagine that as you're sitting down with this project, you sit there and think, well, where is the area most likely that we ought to land? You know, where should we go? Where should be home base where we, we set up our, our workers and our corporate workers? And where, how are we going to do this? And let's imagine as you're sitting around this meeting, you have one person from the company that says to you, I once read something about a town called Maramachine, New Brunswick. And that is where we are going to establish our outpost. If we are going to be, dominate the Canadian market, take over the Canadian market with the most trendy clothes that exist in all of Canada, it's going to be based out of Maramachine, New Brunswick. Now, if anyone's here from New Brunswick, I just met someone actually, so forgive me. I didn't use your city at least. But, uh, you know, t- why would you start there? If you want to influence a country, you've got to start in Toronto. Maybe Vancouver, maybe Montreal, Miramichi, New Brunswick. What is it known for? You know, decaying hospitals, the obesity capital of Canada. Like, why would you start there? This is the least strategic city to join into. And Jesus is doing exactly that, and Matthew wants us to see it. He's starting with the, the nobodies, the people who weren't picked, who were, who were looked over. And he's starting there because he knows these will be the people that know they need him. These will be the people who know that, 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 uh, that, they're not sort of, that God's not indebted to them because of their goodness. These are the people who are desperate, who are longing for help, who want a full restoration that they've never experienced. He sets up his outpost there, not in Jerusalem, not near the temple, not within the halls of power. He starts with the weak. He starts with the lowly. Now, why does any of this matter? Let me just make some quick ap- application. If you have come to a place in your life where you begin to believe. And you know pastors struggle with this, if, if we're all honest. Where you believe somehow God needs you, or somehow God owes you, or you've come to the place where you believe, my goodness, you know, Christianity might not make it in Toronto if it wasn't for my connections, the degrees behind my name, my vast network, my, my, my gifts. And you start to think that in some real senses, you are the person that God is going to use to bless, you know, a city or a country. This passage is telling you to watch out. Because the people God wants to work with, where he wants to establish his outpost, are the weak, they're the unknown, they're the ones that are written off, the impure, the passed over. He's consistently moving away from those who think that they sit in seats of power to those who know themselves to be weak and needy and understand it. This is part of what it means to be his people. If you want the kingdom to come, if you want to experience the power of the kingdom, that's going to come to you when you feel most weak, 
most filled with shame, most filled with need. So who does the kingdom come to? Subjects who know they need a king. Subjects who are most weak and vulnerable, who know they are sitting under judgment. But what kind of kingdom does Jesus bring? Let's ask this question next. Jesus tells the same exact sermon, actually, that John the Baptist gives. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, this is a summary of all he's teaching in this region during the time. It's, it's actually going to sum up pretty much all of Jesus' ministry until he ends up on the cross. Essentially, he's saying, repent, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is this kingdom of heaven he speaks about? He's going to speak about it over 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to have to understand something of this. So what kind of kingdom does Jesus bring? Now, the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven, was this long-held belief by God's people. It was something that they not only believed, but they, they were hopeful in, and they sung about. They came together, when they came together and sang worship songs, they, they sang about the kingdom of God coming in, about God breaking out from his realm in the heavens down into the earthly realm, coming into our world like a ruler, like a king, and reigning with all of his glory and might and power, which resides fully in heaven on the earth. That one day he would be with his people. He would restore their fortunes, especially in the lands like Zebulon and Naphtali. And God's people would, were longing for this day. They wanted this day when those who had oppressed them would be punished, the poor would be fed, injustice would be done away with. This is something they were longing for and working for. This time when evil would ultimately begin to be defeated and peace and justice would flourish. These are what... The bedtime stories were about to their kids. It's what they longed for. God had given glimpses to Abraham. He had given glimpses to, to the prophets that one day this kingdom would come and it would break in on earth. And this is what they hoped for. And the hallmark of Jesus' ministry is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the sermon that he preaches. And yet, as he preaches the sermon, verse 17, what do we see at the very beginning of the verse that we read? Verse 12. Jesus begins to preach the sermon when? When John the Baptist has been arrested. Okay. If God's people had longed for his kingdom to break in, where injustice would be put away, where righteousness would flourish, where the life of God in heaven would be in a real way tasted on earth, why in the world can Jesus come, or how in the world can Jesus come and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand right after he lets us know that John has been arrested and we know John will eventually be beheaded? It's because Jesus knows what type of kingdom he's bringing in, and it's slightly different than the expectations people had for it. This kingdom of heaven is, is somewhat different. The kingdom has arrived in a very real way in Jesus. But Jesus is bringing in a kingdom that doesn't arrive in its fullness all in one package. It comes at us, maybe you could say, in phases. If it came in its fullness, John wouldn't be imprisoned. But John is imprisoned, and Jesus is still saying the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's, it's in him. It's starting now, even if it won't be fully realized until times down the road. Theologians like to say the kingdom is possible that it can be inaugurated without it being fully consummated. Another easy way to think of this is there's a sense in which the kingdom can already be here, but this kingdom can also not yet be here at the exact same time. And we're always caught in this tension, already and not yet. But what type of kingdom is this? Well, this is no ordinary kingdom. Maybe I can remind you the big story of the Bible the God who created the heavens and the earth was a great king. He, he was a king over this earth, and he created the first human beings to be rulers under him. 
to be little kings and queens who would rule over his dominion, this earth that he created. He created them after his own image to watch over the animals, to watch over all that took place in the earth. And you may remember or may not even know, but the first humans, Adam and Eve, were to produce a, a sort of royal lineage that would watch over the earth and take the earth, which was sort of untamed, and make it civilized and take dominion over it so that people could live there and make it so that all the earth was set to flourish, so that human life might flourish and that rightful worship might be offered to God, the creator and true king over this world. He gives to our first parents this duty to be these kings and these queens, but they start, in a sense, as children. And as we looked at last week, he commands the angels to be for these children tutors of some sorts, to train them, that they might rightly grow up and know how to take dominion and be kings, just like their heavenly father. But as you know, and as we discussed last week, a portion of those spiritual beings, these angels, rebel against God. They decide they want to hijack and take over this world, this creation from its creator, and they start a coup. And one of those deceived angels, who was called the deceiver or Satan or devil, the devil, convinces our first parents in that state, of, that, that state of immaturity to follow after him, to take dominion his way, to use the earth for his means. And this sets upon the earth a, a nasty curse that is visible everywhere we see, even if you don't say you believe in the devil. The effects of this one action continue to, to have ramifications on all of us as Satan and the, the spiritual forces, which we can't see with our eyes and we can't fully understand, begin to make a mess of this world that God has created and to set man against man and woman against man and to put violence on this earth and to bring death into this particular earth. But God doesn't let his world fall into utter chaos. As you know the story, he chooses a people, people of Israel. He grants to them promises. And these people mature and they live into these promises, but they know none of their kings and none of their leaders were ever able to fight the ultimate battle, the battle with which God's kingdom comes in, to defeat Satan and his powers and uh, those fellow deceived fallen angels. And at the best of times, God's people do experience God's blessing. They experience peace. They learn to rightfully worship him again. But at all times, they're always waiting for this true and final king to come, not just to defeat their earthly enemies, but to defeat these enemies behind the enemies, these bigger enemies, which seem to have influence over them and influence over other nations. And they're waiting for this deeper battle to be fought. This is the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring, a kingdom that's sort of beyond the kingdoms, that's deeper than the kingdoms, that's, that's thicker and, and, and wider and vaster than the kingdoms. And that's why he can say his kingdom can come in well, at the exact same time John is being arrested because he's fighting this bigger battle. Maybe I can say it this way. I've been trying to teach. I, I quite enjoy playing chess with my daughters. My youngest daughter, uh, being the youngest of four, has been neglected like all fourth youngest child children are. And so her chess skills are not good. And at some point, the chessboard just turns into checkers when she's had enough and her brain just can't compute anymore. All of a sudden, you know, you've got pawns jumping queens and, you know, kings Kings jumping at rooks. And it's, at, at the end of the day, as her father, you just go along with it. You decide to play along. But in, at the end of the day, she, she just can't compute. She can't keep up. It's, it's too complicated to see all the moves and see the moves ahead. Well, in some mysterious way, the Bible tells us that there's, our mindsets are caught in this world of checkers, but there's a chess match going on that, that is beyond our ability to understand. And it takes place with these, these demons in the, in, in the spiritual realm and these angels, and we don't fully understand it, but we know it's a real battle. And we know there's things going on, and every now and then we see the pieces move, and we, we get glimpses of it, but we can't see the full thing. 
The kingdom Jesus is coming to bring is a kingdom that, though unseen to us, is very real. A kingdom that is very, very palpable and tangible, though not fully visible and fully understand it, understood. Now, why does any of this matter? I'm being long-winded, saying Jesus brings in this mysterious and spiritual kingdom that defeats the kingdom, is, is beginning to defeat the kingdom of Satan, which in some senses is a much bigger deal than just defeating one a geopolitical body. Now, why is this important? Because at the beginning of the sermon, I listed a series of people who have used their life and represented Christ in a, in, in a deceptive way in the name of the kingdom of God. Some better than others, retreating to monasteries is obviously better than political revolutions, but nonetheless, they've sought the kingdom of God on their own terms, things they can see with sight. And this is a kingdom that's going to roll in initially by faith as Jesus fights these invisible and spiritual battles against the devil. And that's why you can say when you're near Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and at this exact same time, John is sitting in prison. What type of kingdom is Jesus bringing? It's a kingdom unlike any of the kingdoms of the world. It's not unlike them in the sense that it's spiritual and they're physical. It's more than physical. It's the kingdom beyond the kingdoms. It's the battle beyond the battles. It's the bigger picture, which is unseen and un we're not fully able to perceive as human beings. It's, it's a heavenly, mysterious kingdom and experience now. Now, why does any of this matter to you? Why does this matter to me? Well, if every Christian on the entire earth tomorrow was removed from every earthly throne, and if, if we were deprived as Christians of every position of worldly influence and power, and if as Christians we lost all of our property and all of our wealth tomorrow, none of this in the smallest way would diminish anyone's ability to fully experience the joy of the kingdom of God and the benefits of being citizens in that kingdom. That's why this matters. Jesus came to defeat death and the greatest benefit of being a citizen of that kingdom. The greatest thing that you have on your passport is that death will not be your final defeat. It'll be the beginning of the end. It'll be the tasting of life unending, new with our God. This kingdom that Jesus brings in is one that is experienced by faith. And obviously, prosperity is to be preferred in many ways than persecution. I'd much rather worship in the cathedrals over the catacombs but it makes no difference for the sake of God's kingdom how these things play out. The kingdom can spread in the worst of times and in the best of times because it's the kingdom beyond the kingdoms. It's the bigger picture. Now, don't hear me saying that earthly things then don't matter. Jesus is about to go do a tremendous amount of healings uh, in Matthew's gospel. He very much cares about the earthly things. But he's saying beyond the earthly things, there's a bigger picture, a bigger story that's going on. When the fullness of the kingdom comes, when it all arrives, there won't be a hungry belly. There won't be conflict that's unending. It'll be done away with. The Lord will put these things to right when the fullness of his kingdom comes. But he comes to start or inaugurate his kingdom, and he does this in a realm sort of beyond our perception. It is a spiritual kingdom, a mysterious kingdom, a mystical kingdom, but no less real, no less palpable. What kind of kingdom does Jesus bring? I hope I've made my point. It's a spiritual or heavenly kingdom that breaks into the earthly. It's not always visible. It's something that often has to be held on to by faith. Now, how can we rightly be part of this kingdom today? Let's, let's end our time by asking, how can we rightly be part of this kingdom Jesus brings? And the passage couldn't be clearer. What does it say? Repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is such a churchy word. It sounds so, so fundamentalist. What in the world does it mean? 
so prone to being misunderstood. Repentance is nothing more than about face. It's seeing that you're headed in the wrong direction and doing a course correction. You are deviating off course and coming back on to the right course. Repentance is that moment you knew you were wrong, you knew you were heading the wrong way, and you turn the car completely around and head the other way. Whether that costs you a great personal reputation, whether that costs you great shame in your life, it doesn't matter. Repentance is knowing you're heading the wrong way and you're going to turn around. Whatever the consequences might be, you will take it. Repentance is about face, acknowledging that there's been a deviation. It's, it's, it's this particular moment. It's not an abstract feeling of guilt or feeling bad or regret or sorrow, though those often accompany repentance. There is a sense in which you do have to first feel some measure of regret and sorrow, but that doesn't guarantee you're repentant. There's all kinds of people with regret that still feel like what they did was justifiable and would do it again. Repentance is feeling these things and saying, the, the trajectory my life is on, it's got to turn around. I, I've got to do an about-face. I am going the wrong way. I have to shift my allegiances, shift my loyalties, turn these things back. This is what repentance looks like. Maybe I'll say it this way. Jesus doesn't actually tell people what they ought to repent of. He says, repent because I'm near. Repentance is not so much about stopping being a bad person and being a good person. It's about stopping being a person who's deviating off course and coming back to being God's person. Not, stop being the person who's part of the kingdom of Satan and come back to being part of the kingdom who, the, of the creator who, get, who had created you and had made you and whom you were meant to have a relationship with. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. This week I heard the story of a very good secretary. From the best I could read, she sounds like she was an incredible secretary. She was never late for work. She did everything her boss asked of her and even more. She had an incredible eye for detail and was able to do things to keep her department incredibly efficient. She helped her teammates and her coworkers whenever. She took the late shift. She was never late to be back from lunch. She was kind. She was generous. She was faithful. She was loyal. But you are never going to read a book about this woman's secretarial skills. And you know why? Because there's one piece of information I didn't tell you about this secretary. Her name was uh, Imgard Furchner. The name probably means nothing because I mispronounced it. She's 97 years old. She was the woman a couple months ago who was tried in Germany. She was arrested, tried to flee from arrest and tried in Germany because her incredible secretarial skills were done in a concentration camp where tens of thousands were murdered. And with this one piece of information about what flag she worked for, everything good about her has now changed in your mind. Everything that was perceived to be virtuous is now done for a wicked cause. Look, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. Good and bad matter in some senses very little. What matters most is what flag these things are done under. And Jesus is coming to bring a kingdom. And with that kingdom, he has a flag. And he's calling people to repent of the fact that they've been following after the flag of the kingdom of Satan. You might not feel it, but the kingdom that says, do all things that give you the most pleasure and comfort and status in society. Do what feels most right to you, what makes you feel most alive. When you act that way, you're acting under the flag of King Satan. And you're marching towards these particular orders. And though you can do very good things, I'm not denying it, there are very, very good people in our city doing very, very good things. Things which we ought to emulate and do well. Things I'm not trying to slander. They're legitimately good. 
but they're done under the wrong flag. And when they're done under the wrong flag, you have put yourself in enmity against the other flag. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I have this banner held high. Quit marching under this flag about face and follow me. And follow me. So much of what we think about repentance is about being a good person and getting rid of bad things. Listen, so many good things are done under a bad flag. We could go on and on and on with examples. Jesus is saying this when he says repent. He's saying, come to me. Come to me. This isn't necessarily about behavior modification, though it will probably be included. He's saying, come to me. Have relationship with me. This is a personal call. Come under the dominion of Jesus. Trust him. Follow him. Live under his flag. This is the call of God's people. Jesus says, repent. And he's saying, stop running away from me. Come to me. I, I have, I'm here to offer you not just help, but new life. I'm here to offer you hope unending. Come to me. Repent. Follow after me. And that cry that Jesus gave to start his ministry here in Galilee, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That relational claim, not so much about do good works instead of bad works, but quit following after self-absorption and follow me and the kingdom I'm bringing. That call is here to you today, this morning, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. Stop operating under this kingdom of perceived autonomy, self-pleasure, self-comfort, and begin operating under this flag of the kingdom of Jesus. This is what he offers to you and to me today. Cry out to Jesus and say to this, this is what repentance might look like for you today. Say, lead me, Jesus. I am lost. I am confused. I am hopeless. I have so much anxiety. I don't know what's going on. Lead me. And as soon as you say that prayer, you're going to find out what repentance looks like. Because he will indeed lead you. He will direct you. He will guide your steps. And though it will be painful at times, you'll find yourself moving with him towards life unending. Towards a hope that can't be destroyed by any prison or any torture. Towards a life unending. This is what is offered to you in King Jesus, the one who will give his life, shed his blood, that full forgiveness might be yours, and that you might taste life unending with him when you experience the resurrection and life in this kingdom. Let me pray. Our Lord, we give you great thanks that you call us to be a people of this kingdom. And in your mysterious plan, you inaugurate and start a kingdom which can't be thwarted by any political system. And no matter how much we may feel like minorities in this city, and no matter how much we might even be persecuted, the true benefits of being citizens of your kingdom can be tasted and experienced today by faith. I pray now, Father, that your spirit would work to unite the benefits that you won at the cross and in the resurrection to us who by faith say to you, follow me, or say to, say to you, lead me, and we will follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.